Hello, and welcome to Sounding Out with Izzy, the podcast where we have conversations with musicians, music producers, publicists, live promoters, zine makers, journalists, and more about their experiences working in the music industry as women, non-binary, and queer femme people. I'm your host, Isabel Corp the founder of the Queer Femme music-based blog and YouTube channel, A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Today's episode is one half of a two-way collaboration with another amazing podcaster who's just as passionate about music as I am. My guest today is Claire, host of What the Hell is Up, a podcast where she chats with artists who are cultivating healing and change on a planet that's melting. Since Claire and I live on opposite coasts, her in the Pacific Northwest and myself in the Northeast, we decided to give each other a masterclass on our favorite bands from our hometowns. Over on Claire's podcast, which is linked below in the show notes, you can hear her educate me all about the iconic Seattle-based feminist pop-punk band Taco Cat, and here you will hear me teach Claire all about my personal hometown heroes, the modern lovers. So settle in as we flip on our headlights and take a drive down Route 128 when it's cold outside as I take a trip down memory lane. As usual, I would like to remind listeners that I am paying for the podcast out of pocket, So if you would like to help me continue to create more episodes and maybe buy me a coffee as well, please consider donating to or checking out my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Those who join my Patreon will get to unlock bonus content, including music-based film reviews with special guests unheard and unedited conversations in podcast episodes, playlists curated by yours truly, as well as early access to some of my YouTube content. However, I understand that finances are tight for many people, so if you are unable to join the Patreon, I fully understand. All I ask is that you give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as that really helps me out in my effort to get the podcast in front of more people. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to Sounding Out with Izzy. Today we are asking what the hell is up with a very special guest. Who are you and what do you do? Hello listeners, my name is Claire and... Yeah, I'm a podcaster. My podcast is called What the Hell is Up? It's a podcast where I interview artists and musicians that I find in my local community who I believe are striving to create something that transcends themselves. I try to prioritize BIPOC women and queer artists and musicians. I've also just connected with friends and people who I happen to meet in life and link them into episodes. And then I interweave my episodes with music and also bring out aspects of my own story with the themes that come up during the podcast. 
Cool. If I could go into interview mode for just like one question, I promise this isn't going to turn into a whole <laughs> but thing, but Please. what, how, do, how, can you give me a cool example of how you incorporate like little aspects of your own life into the conversation process? Cause that sounds really cool. Sure. Yeah. So I, I like to think that I analyze the art that I engage with but through my own personal lens. And of course we all do that, but I also want my own. When I began the podcast, it was more of like a personal journal. And then I started meeting musicians who I resonated with their music in a really personal way and found a lot of truth about questions that I was asking, like about my own life through the art that they were making. So I guess an example would be on a recent episode. It was called What the Hell is Up with Cascade Mountain Flow. I interviewed a friend of mine who's a rapper and his producer, and they're like a rapping electronic duo. One of their songs is called Cascade, and it's sort of about, inspired by the Pacific Northwest, but it's about how interpersonally and artistically we have to take these risks and sometimes just go down the mountain that occurs and things can snowball. And so with that, I sort of reflected on that theme occurring in my own life after a year of making the podcast. And so I bring in, yeah, just like aspects of where those artistic themes resonate in my own story. That's really awesome. And also ties into the theme of what we're doing today because we are sharing with one another. We are doing a little collab on both of our shows. So totally go hop on over to Claire's show where I will be a guest and where she will educate me on Taco Cat, both bands that we are educating one another on our bands from our hometowns and where we come from. And yeah, I'm excited to get into this today because my hometown band is the Modern Lovers. And another cool thing we'll be doing is tracing our artists' footsteps throughout our homes and bringing to light some really cool aspects from our hometowns that outsiders might not be aware of. So to get right into it. What really made me gravitate to the Modern Lovers, I think, is one of the things that Vice says in one of their retrospective articles on the Modern Lovers. They called them the greatest alt-rock proto-punk indie band that no one has ever seen because they famously only made one album. And that album was never even released until after they had long been broken up for over two years. And but that album is still considered a collector's classic in early punk rock on a level with garage bands like the Stooges and the Velvet Underground. And I'm going to introduce a little bit of what they're about with a fantastic quote from a feature on them in Boston Rock Storybook. <clears throat> quote, you're watching Repo Man and you hear a third generation punk band from L.A. singing about how some people like to pick up girls and get called assholes. This never happened to Pablo Picasso. You're driving home and the college radio station plays a John Cale song that turns out to be a very different interpretation of the same song. 
You're listening to a Sex Pistols bootleg of the first tune they ever recorded. They're trashing a song called Roadrunner, obviously unfamiliar with the places named in the lyrics, places like the local stop and shop and Route 128. You rent a video called Kingpin, and there's this quirky little group playing in the background of a bowling alley scene. What do all these incidents have in common? A native son of Massachusetts named Jonathan Richmond. Now, Jonathan Richmond, as you may have gathered from context clues, is the de facto leader slash lead singer of The Modern Lovers. And he's considered by many to be the godfather of punk and is known for his poetic roots, writing about the magic and drudgery of everyday life in the style of poets like William Butler Yeats. And his writing and the sentiment behind it always sort of manages to hit me in the feels because he writes about love and feelings very well. I feel like modern lover songs often document the mundane in everyday life, activities like getting ice cream, driving on the interstate for a long time with no destination, going to a museum. And what I think is really cool is he does it in a way that doesn't feel overstated or cliche. His songs are known for their simple two, three chord structure, gritty guitar and keyboard tones that sound like drums. So there's a very angular sort of rhythm to it. And so the album, their only album, their infamously only album opens with the song Roadrunner. And I had you listen to the album as homework before we met. So I'm curious, what were your first impressions of the album? Yeah. Well, I I noted that like it was their only album, which I found to be very like curious. And also like I think it was released in like 76. Is that correct? And like what I was briefly without like, you know, trying to like spoil anything, I like saw one thing that said like they were kind of like ahead of their time with this like album. But I really liked like the synthy bits in the back. Like there were some really like funky keys and lyrically it was like very funny and ironic when he's singing. It's just like, like you're saying, like there's like this existential dread in the mundane and yet like fascination with it. And like the way that heartbreak is presented I don't know. It just remind. It just feels like, man, this guy can't catch a break. <laughs> and like really humorous lyrics from that. I was a big fan of Pablo Picasso and also Hospital. Those ones were like especially intriguing. Absolutely, I love how you pegged the synthy keyboard background sounds as a very standout quality to the record as well because. This band famously had the iconic, legendary Jerry Harrison in their lineup. And if you recognize that name, he is the keyboardist of Talking Heads. And they also had David Robinson, who went on to become a founding member of the Cars on drums. So this band, in addition to being like, very outlandishly quirky in their sound and output, they 
also have several members who went on to found other really forward thinking and pioneering new wave bands. Um, so does that explain why they only put out one album? Well, it's almost as if you read my notes. The group (laughs) dissipated pretty quickly after recording a few demos, one for Warner Brothers, I believe in another for A&M, because they were being scouted by these labels, but none of the demo sessions really brought about anything fruitful. I think Jonathan Richmond was starting to to look toward different prospects, like his more folky sort of solo work. I love how you and were, and also you mentioned you're a fan of Pablo Picasso and Hospital. I love those songs as well. I really love the fact that that Pablo Picasso famously was an asshole. <laughs> like, um, but he was never called an asshole. He was that's never the called an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think that song is. So even, but even with the irony of its lyrics, like it's just, just the groove. I'm obsessed with it. And uh, just the rhythm of like in Roadrunner, some of my favorite lyrics, I'm going to do a thematic reading. I'm in love with modern moonlight, 128 when it's dark outside. I'm in love with Massachusetts. I'm in love with the radio on. It helps me from being alone late at night. I love these lyrics so much because I grew up blasting music while driving down 128 late at night, (laughs) often with no destination. I just needed to drive to clear my head. And there's nothing more cathartic than just like flooring it on the highway when nobody else is out. And you're just and you've got the radio just at 120. And Jonathan Richmond was raised in a Jewish family in Natick, Massachusetts, which is a very like more quaint subtown in Middlesex County, about 10 miles outside of Boston. And I grew up knowing Natick just for its shopping malls. So I just know it as the mall town, essentially. <laughs> so all there kind of is to know there. Kind of a little bit. It's but yeah, that's most most of their real estate, I would say, is the shopping centers and malls. So learning that like the godfather of punk was raised there was a really interesting fact that I did not know about, which I find really cool. And around the time that he approached 18, he heard the Velvet Underground for the first time and his entire world opened up. And now what I'm curious, Claire, what do you, what do you think of like, what's the, some of the first st- thoughts that come to your mind when you think of the Velvet Underground, if you're familiar with their work? Not a lot. <laughs> so the Velvet Underground is a band that occupies one of the most interesting, I think, spaces in American culture and history. Because... Around the time that they released their self-titled debut album that was funded by Andy Warhol in 1967, we were just like two years before approaching the death knell of the 60s and the hippie movement, which would have been after the Manson family trials and killings in 1969. And it would take a bit of time before that transition gave way into the punk renaissance and That's another 
I swear I could start a whole other podcast about like what the Velvet Underground represented because like it's just there's just so much interesting material there. And I I highly recommend like looking into it and reading into it. It's a really fun rabbit hole to sort of dive into to make sure that I'm not rambling. Is there anything you're curious about or do you have any questions? (laughs) Yeah, my music knowledge just feels very young to be honest like I know not very much about the history of genres I've been learning more about hip-hop punk music is I remember I went to a poetry reading where I got this guy's like free poetry book that was it was like a coming-of-age poetry collection of like his interaction with punk music and so I know of like the Sex Pistols from that and but I don't know pretty I don't know anything about the Velvet Underground so well it's perfect that we are doing teaching moments for each other because I'm excited to for instance like for your for you to give me a whole presentation on Taco Cat so yes this is good the Velvet Underground they occupy such an interesting point and I think there's such an interesting representation of like the, also the connection between the beat generation and uh, sort of the death knell of the hippie movement. I think they had a very interesting ties to Allen Ginsberg and other like really just artists who were really flipping the table like Warhol. And also like the, the music they made was abrasive. It scared people. People were people heard it for the first time and were like, People did not think of the Velvet Underground in the 60s like they think of the Velvet Underground now. People were like, what the fuck is this noise? This sounds horrible. This is depressing. Like, who would want to listen to this? But one of the few who got it was Jonathan Richmond. And in fact, he was so affected by hearing the Velvet Underground for the first time that he moved to New York for nine months and crashed on their manager's couch while he worked as a busboy. And he didn't stay in New York for very long, but I wanted to share with you a fun clip from the recent Velvet Underground documentary where he speaks about the effect they had on him. And it's very nice to watch him get animated while he talks. It, I think I love that. I love how animated he gets. He's just like, oh, and Lou Reed just does his whole cadence like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I love the sound of his voice. Right. Because like, it's, that's like the thing too, is even today, I think people severely underestimate how influential they were without the Velvet Underground. We wouldn't have certain eras of, or incarnations of David Bowie's personas, like, like even like Hunky Dory and then later Spiders from Mars. And we wouldn't have bands like the Stooges, who uh, Iggy Pop's whole output at that time, John, which John Cale actually produced the first Stooges album as well. John Cale, who played the strings in the Velvet Underground. And also Lou Reed's writing was very similar as well. The way he wrote about just like the old, just people he saw on the street during the grittier days of metropolitan New York life. And also another thing that they showed people, I feel like, is that it's possible not to be a skilled singer or be able to play in a melodically or harmonically sound way. 
in order to start a band. It what mattered a lot was is the sentiment behind it. And so Jonathan Richmond moves to New York City, sleeps on their manager Steve Seisnick's couch for a while. And after but about how did he may I ask, like how did he get how did he just find that opportunity? Like how did he he was that, in the scene already, like he had a connection. He was like probably like, I'm just I have to I'm meet just, them. He does have a story about meeting Lou Reed where he walks up to him and he's like, Hey, are you Lou Reed? This was in Harvard Square. And Lou Reed's like, Yeah, what do you want, boy? And he's like, Oh my god, I love the way you play. And Lou Reed was like, Huh? Okay. So I assume he might have met his their manager through Lou Reed because I think Lou Reed had told him after the fact. Oh, there, there's this kid who ran up to me on the street, and he sounds like he gets it. <laughs> so I think that might have been his window in. Upon returning to Boston, he met this guy who played drums, David Robinson, and two. Of, of the other members and on bass and keyboards they played at Cambridge Commons they played a free show and two people in the audience were Jerry Harrison who was attending Harvard at the time and Ernie Brooks who was his roommate and when they saw after they saw Jonathan perform live they they joined the band. They were like, I, I like what this guy's about. And I wanted to share a funny anecdote that I found from Ernie Brooks about watching that performance. He said, Jonathan was doing that song, I'm Straight, which of course he was. Another fun fact, <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan Richmond famous, is famously one of the very few rock and rollers who never touched an ounce of drugs. Like he didn't, he was like, don't, I don't want to go near it. I don't want it near me. He famously tried. Here's the the rest of the quote. Jonathan didn't take drugs though. Later on, Jerry persuaded him to take a puff of marijuana. And Jonathan suddenly got this weird look on his face and got up and was about to pick up a frying pan and said, Jerry, I'm going to have to hit you with this because I have to hurt somebody in order to know that I'm stoned and I'm not myself. And I cracked up and said, Jonathan, that's okay. You don't have to do that. Jonathan was really upset that his consciousness had been altered. And as far as I know, that's how he's always been. Very straight. So in that sense, I'm straight was real and completely true. <laughs> this guy is such a character. <laughs> right? Hey, everyone. Editing Booth, is he here? Just wanted to butt in to say, how could I have possibly forgotten something about Mary, the 1998 rom-com starring Ben Stiller and Cameron Diaz? where Jonathan Richmond can be seen doing many of his quintessential Jonathan Richmond-isms. In the film, Richmond and Tommy Larkins serve as a two-man Greek chorus driving the narrative of the film. And while I can't say I enjoyed the film itself all that much, this was definitely a highlight. Now back to the conversation. Now, it's pretty rare that you hear of like any performer that's that straight edge, like to the extreme. And it's kind of funny because he was super influenced by the Velvet Underground, but the Velvet Underground, like were famously like zonked out of their minds on heroin all the time. And 
when you think about it, like the sentiment between like the lyrics, when you contrast them, Modern Lovers versus Velvet Underground, they're pretty much the inverse of one another. In fact, Ernie Brooks, the bassist, has a funny quote where he says that the Velvet Underground was basically playing into the darkness, whereas the Modern Lovers were sort of playing into the light. And that's pretty apt because on one hand, you have Lou Reed sing in the Velvet Underground singing about how heroin's my life and my wife and Jonathan Richmond on the other hand is like, hey, what's up with hippie Johnny over there? Why is he always stoned? (laughs) (laughs) And now one of my favorite, and here we go, we're getting to the album now. Um, The album was pieced together because they recorded demos for both Warner Brothers and A&M Records who were sort of like like sort of circling like eagles like they 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 both had their these labels were both like scouting them and possibly going to start a bidding war over them and these sessions ultimately proved to be fruitless nothing really great came of them and they ended up ultimately being scrapped for personal reasons the group disintegrated after that because the members had different artistic ambitions Jonathan put out solo work, Jerry joined Talking Heads, and Dave joined the Cars. And, But I found this really fantastic quote that sort of explains what happens. In 1975, Richmond moved to California to begin his association with Berserkly Records. Berserkly contacted the very collected the various demos that they could access of Richmond's earlier group and pulled them together. And That eventually turned into the self-titled album, The Modern Lovers, which was released on Berserkly's Home of the Hits subsidiary in 1976. Given the piecemeal nature of the assemblage, Richmond does not recognize it as his first album, awarding that distinction instead to 1977's Jonathan Richmond and The Modern Lovers, different group, not to be confused with the original band of the same name, an album with a wholly different band vibe and approach. But The Modern Lovers was instantly recognized as a classic and still came out in enough time to strongly influence the aspiring punk rock musicians on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, this is the story, the type of story that I love, because stories like this, where if it weren't for one person or a few people scavenging behind the scenes for lost demo tapes, like we wouldn't have one of the most seminal like underground art rock albums of all time. And for purely like selfish reasons, I wouldn't have this album (laughs) that feels like a tether to where I came from in so many ways whenever I listen to it. It's really evident in like Jonathan's writing how pure and plentiful his love of New England and Massachusetts is. And I also I found this really cool assemblage of Boston locations that he writes about in his songs on the website Backyard Road Trips. So I'm going to share my screen and I'm going into this blind like you as well. Fenway, I feel like is a very, is one of the more obvious locations. There's Red Sox, Green Monster, the park, but there's also, and that's, and you sort of lead up to that from Boylston street. And there's a really cool, something about Boston. That's really nice is there are various squares that make up shopping centers. So there's Kenmore square where there's like fun little hangout sports bars. And that's where you'll find a lot of like all the sports patrons going after a game to hang out. And there's 
obviously like Harvard Square and and there's also like little and what's re- what's also cool is like you, unlike other cities like Boston is like a little unlike New York which is a grid it's just a bunch of squares uptown downtown and north south like the the compass is like perpendicular it's a grid but in Boston it's like a bunch of like squiggly roads that sort of loop around one another. Oh. And with that one major road you had mentioned? The interstate? Or- um not not really. I would because that, that's that a one highway. is the highway that's, highway. that's going that around Boston. State. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. And Oh, yep. Here it is. Winter after BU in Boston, modern world, Boston University. Yep. There it is. My mom, my mom's a BU alumni. So whenever uh, we are like on the road, I always like to sort of like nudge my mom whenever I sing that line, like put down the cigarette and drop out of BU. She couldn't drop out. She graduated. She she can't reverse time, but (laughs) I wonder if she ever wanted to because of that lyric. <laughs> that would have. Um, I guess maybe I don't know if the timelines would have worked out there. Oh, like she would. She definitely would have heard it by then. But if she had wanted, if she had even expressed the idea, like my grandfather would have murdered her. <laughs> <laughs> she because he was like he was the person who was like footing the bill for her education and like. Sounds so, like just that East Coast mentality that, that I would East expect. East Coast mentality. Yep. <laughs> Government center. Here we go. Back downtown, Richmond references the center of Boston Government Center in the song, the same name. This is the area surrounding Boston City Hall Plaza full of courthouses, government buildings, and a parking garage. I have walked under that parking garage many a time. So this is a one of the most nostalgic songs purely because of the title Philadelphia there's a record store in Philadelphia called Government Center after the song and I was like Philadelphia that's mine you can't have it that pure east coast mentality (laughs) yeah that song makes more sense and (laughs) what else does it say although this area is full of lunch spots and night nightlife establishments I did not know that that it was full of nightlife establishments Government Center was located in a notorious Scully Square of yore, full of bars and brothels. Oh, interesting. I did not know that either. Have you ever been to Boston, by the way? No. So definitely go visit Harvard Square, just purely because, like, for the bookstores and stuff like that, and the dining spots, especially the independent ones. The square has its share of upscale pubs like Grafton Street and Grendel's Den. See, this is interesting for me, too, because I feel like one thing I regret about not having adulted enough in Boston is that I didn't quite get to the chance to explore many of the like nightlife spots there. Went to school in, in New York, right? I did, yes. Books and music, the coop. Oh, nice. Yep, that's the where you get all things Harvard memorabilia. The coop's really cute, though. I don't know. I... This sounds weird, but I love like the the smell of paper when you enter a bookstore. It's just so satisfying. It is. 
So that's like walking into the coop. That's so satisfying. And oh, yep, Dunkin' Donuts, epicenter for Dunkin' is Boston. And so, yeah, you, there, there's a Dunkin' Donuts on every street corner. You'll go to go to one little suburban town center in Massachusetts. There's at least four Dunkins on every but side. But how are the donuts? Like, are how the donuts are good? Donuts? Oh, I haven't had a donut from Dunkin' Donuts in many a years. I used to be obsessed with their glazed donuts, though. The thing is that my standards for what is good and what isn't good have changed so much since, like, I since growing up, you know, and not being in and not the and the only access that I have to coffee and pastries not being like worldwide global chains. So I did think Dunkin' Donuts were good when I was a kid, but I'm gonna have to go to a Dunkin' at some point <laughs> and see if I still like it. I'll have to message you and be like, here's the verdict on the donuts. But yeah, de- definitely go for the experience for sure. Right. Strong yeah. recommend. And Roadrunner. Oh, yes, here we go. Unlike the songs Twilight in Boston and the Fenway, the locations in the song Roadrunner are a bit more general. The song describes driving down Route 128 and also today's Route 95 late at night, seeing the neon and the trees go by, the grocery store shop, stop and shop. My family has a place on Nantucket, which is just off the Cape. It's its own island, but it's... It's really gorgeous, but the only chain they have there is Stop and Shop. That's like a famous rule on the island is no no chains, no corporate interference. I'm, I mean, the real estate has gone through the roof, obviously, because of inflation and like the stock market being what it is and stuff like that. So I'm I'm surprised that they've been able to sort of like avoid like the the corporate invasion, <laughs> like the the only chain there is stop and shop but anyway yeah there's a million stop and shops in massachusetts and back to what this article says the location on route 128 in one version of the song does actually mention the needham radio towers my grandmother lives in needham the best part of working this part of the trip into a travel route is that there's a good chance that by just getting to another destination, you will encounter Route 128 and a stop and shop. Maybe if 128 is congested, when is it not? Parentheses. Mm-hmm. Humming along with the Roadrunner may lift mm-hmm. your spirits. Yeah. Like I remember like when I first heard like him shout out, I'm going to drive past the stop and shop. And I was like, oh, he gets it. It sounds comforting. It's so close to home. It really is. Yeah. The sentimentality and all the lyrics and stuff is great. Oh, Cape Cod Bridge. Here we are. And that's pretty. Also, you know, what's a really pretty location is right over the Charles River. So right by Harvard Square is the Charles River. It's also near the Museum of Science. Museum of Science, I would I would also recommend going to just for the dinosaur sculptures alone. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, there's also duck tours, by the way. Okay, we have those in Seattle as well, actually. Nice, nice. We have a lot of water. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like water. Yeah, (laughs) surrounded by rivers. This is a bridge that I used to get driven over when my mom would go in and out of work in Cambridge. That is so cool. It looks stunning. There's the Prue, the Prudential Center. That's basically our World Trade Center. (laughs) 
I'm very mm-hmm. good with words, as you can tell. <laughs> I'm following. You're doing great. <laughs> but yeah, the, those are like some, he also mentions the Museum of Fine Arts in the song Girlfriend, I believe. If I were to walk through the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, I would want to go in the room. Paul Cezanne. If I'm pronouncing his last name wrong, I am so sorry, art heads. <laughs> sounds right to me. Yeah, I hope so. Some... Yeah, well, and the place is just so connected to the song. The song. Yeah. So it, it became even more relevant to discuss hometown gems. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I do have a question. Yes, what is your question? So obviously the like geographic significance of like a place impacts like the artist that because art is a response to like your environment and your experiences but on a level of like the culture expressed on the whole in the mood of the album Mm -hmm. how do you think that tracks with like your experience like being from Massachusetts and like having experiences in Boston. Can you speak to that at all? (laughs) I would say that my experience there felt very blank. It felt very, I don't think I appreciated it enough as a child because I grew up in the suburbs where the only reason that families lived there was mostly because of the schooling. So I, the way that I relate to the culture of having nothing to do and driving down route 128 with the radio on, sometimes that's all you can do when, when you're living in such a nothing town, like where I'm from and looking for like a prospective date in the museum of fine arts, like sometimes was the most interesting thing you could do. So I, those parts of it all, like, I feel like really hit me hard. Like that's what I spent most of my adolescence doing as soon as I got a driver's license, just driving and blasting music. Not all of it very good music. I'm a little embarrassed of what I listened to in high school. (laughs) That's a conversation for another day. But, (laughs) But I feel like the culture growing up there, it was also very, like, I didn't meet like an openly gay person in real life, aside from my mom's coworker, who was a family friend, my age until I was like 17. And I imagine like, and you know what, I was mad closeted at 17 and wasn't even aware of it. Like that was the type of stuff I was going through at that point. It was just such like a, like sometimes an endless bore. And then like, other times like intense euphoria whenever I would get near something happening. Like, I think that's what attracted me to New York in a lot of ways. And I, and that's not like to get down or anything. Like I had a very idyllic childhood and I was very, and I was definitely very happy in many ways too. But I think records like this really give me a newfound appreciation for where I came from. Cause I've always, I've never, And not to be like a whole like patriotic, like uh, 
houndy being like, oh, I'm from Boston. I go to the pubs. But I've always worn my Boston pride on my sleeve. Like it's never been a secret. I think I went a little more covert about that. Like when I decided, oh, I'm going to go to college. This is going to be a new chapter. I'm going to put all of this behind me and forget all about it. But it's important to remember where you came from, you know? Well, yeah. And it's kind of, it's cool because the album, like we talked about how he kind of brought a sense of like romanticism to the mundane. Yes. And I feel like it almost helped you do the same with Boston. Absolutely. It really did. Yeah. And also just, it made me realize I want to be more like that. Like, why can't I see magic in the mundane? I ought to do that more often. Like people who are like that inspire me for sure. And I'm sure that you feel the same way about like millions of things and other like music that you love. Yeah. Well, I love how art reminds us to do that. And it's like, you cultivate this like mindfulness about your surroundings. I do so better. I feel like when I let art inspire me to do that too. Absolutely. Who do you feel like is one of like the quintessential artists who has done that for you? Arlo Parks. She is so cute and so, I mean, her poetry is so beautiful and magical and like sweet and sensitive and, but her like imagery about like these small things, it's very loving And I feel like that kind of creation really requires like a loving mindfulness about one's reality. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Arlo Parks is incredible. What's her, what's her name? Hannah Jadagu is going to play on tour with Arlo, right? I don't know. She's really good. I actually, I I featured one of her songs on my podcast. So it was released through Sub Pop Records. I didn't know she was playing with Arlo Parks. I want to check that out. (laughs) That looks so fun. I think another person that's about to join Arlo Parks on tour um, is this guy, uh, Nick Cianci, I think is how you say his name. He just played at the venue I work at. Very, very chill, very sweet dude. But he's in a band, I think, that's about to open for Arlo Parks on tour. I haven't heard of him. Also, like the night after, like I interacted with him and chatted and like chatted him up. Like I, I, the next day I found out he's BFFs with Maya Hawk from stranger things. Oh, okay. Wow. I was just like, okay, look at me being six degrees of separation from Maya Hawk. (laughs) I mean, that's what happens if you work at a venue, I guess. Right. Yeah. But yeah. So a little fun tidbit there that I just found out, but Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me and Claire, what can people, what can people do by jumping over to your podcast? What will they hear? Oh yeah. Well, if you listen to what the hell is up, you're going to hear a little bit more about me, my story being a young queer woman from Seattle, kind of navigating life and trying to do what I said before of like cultivating that mindfulness about art in my community, but you'll hear different stories from like musicians of all genres and other artists cultivating that mindfulness. 
yeah, I'd love if you listened. <laughs> Amazing. And make sure to head on over there as well for part two of our conversation where I will be learning about Taco Cat. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fun. Hell yeah. All right. Thanks, Izzy. Thank you so much for listening to Sounding Out with Izzy and a big thank you to Claire from What the Hell is Up for joining me today. Don't forget to head over to Claire's podcast linked in the show notes below where you will hear me make the transformation from casual Taco Cat listener into Taco Cat superfan. Remember to subscribe and sign up for the mailing list on my YouTube channel and written blog, both under the name A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested, consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode of Sounding Out with Izzy. Mm-hmm.